Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello everyone and welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we help you think about the past in different ways. Now we're doing a bit of an off-the-cuff bonus episode today, aren't we James? We are indeed, Sam. Um, because we've got the anniversary of uh, the Normandy invasions, D-Day, coming up tomorrow. So we decided we would stop everything and do a special Unexpected History bonus. For the 6th of June. For the 6th of June. 2000 and... 19. That's right. Um, 75th anniversary of yeah. D-Day. Yeah, so um, this, this may not be as necessarily polished, even though we do ramble a lot, as, as normal. But what we wanted to do is to... Um, there's going to be a lot of stuff in the press uh, and in the media about the Normandy invasions, about D-Day. And I think James and I just wanted to fly a flag for Unexpected and say, stop and wait and make sure that you are aware of all of the different ways that you might be able to think about Normandy and about D-Day because there are loads of different routes into this fascinating topic and it may well be that you end up hearing the same things over and over again. So that's really our purpose for the day, isn't it? We're going to sort of explode. It is. I have a sort of lump, I have a lump in my throat as well. Yeah, you said when I came around this. you felt a bit teary. Yes, a bit teary and I felt that we we shouldn't do our our normal sort of flippant uh, humorous uh, beginning because I think this is something that is that's incredibly important, uh, incredibly important for historians to think about. And I think one of there are lots of different ways to get into it, as you said. But one of the most important ways to start thinking about it is about remembering. Yeah. So it's about memory, and we're we're witnessing um, the leaders from the a Allied powers uh, today in Portsmouth, and tomorrow they're going to be in Normandy, and they're remembering those brave men and women who lost their lives um, on on those days. Mm. So it's, it's a part of a process of remembering, isn't yeah. it? Um, and there are multiple layers to that. Here's a list of what I think Normandy's about. Okay. I think it's about the present, not the past. Yes. I think it's about layers of history. I think it's about the Iraq War. Yeah, I think it's definitely. about churches. Freudian slips, foreign policy, the Watergate affair, Cold War and Vietnam. <laughs> For me, it's about <laughs> photographs, pockets... Secrets, mm. Slapton Sands, oh yes, of all things, uh, weird weapons and deception, and funnies. Funnies. I'll come to you about. I like a funny. Hobart's funnies. Oh. So it's about all those ingenious contraptions that were designed to 
uh, make sure that the troops could actually land on the beaches in Normandy and then all sorts of wonderful things that you know got rid of mines and tanks could go over and they could bridge water and all sorts of stuff all sorts of clever stuff um i'm going to start go on then um because i've come across something which really really made me me think about d-day in a completely different way and it's a uh, it's an article from 2012 called the many meanings of d-day by mm. someone called kate delaney and what kate delaney has done is a stroke of genius <laughs> kate delaney has looked at all of the previous celebrations and anniversaries of d-day and has studied what people have said at them, what yes. the leaders of the world have yep. said at them. Yep. And um, it's, it's amazingly informative and interesting. Yep. Um, so just to make it clear that the first anniversary for D-Day was the year after it. It was in 1945, June 1945, when the troops had their first, their first anniversary. Oh, and I've, actually, before we start that, it's worth saying what else was going on at the time, because it's not just about attacking northern France. So Rome is liberated at exactly yes. the same time. So news of Allied troops going into Rome and conquering Italy happens at the same time that news of the launch of the Normandy attacks also happens. So yep. um, the Allies are on tenterhooks. It's going well in one area and they want it to go well Rome was elsewhere. a mistake, apparently. They should have gone elsewhere. Well, freed up, up the peninsula instead, but they were after the glory of Rome. It worked in Allegedly. terms of, of how it was how it was reported. I tell you that much. Uh, so here are some <laughs> really wonderful things. So the the the, the fifth anniversary, nineteen forty nine. Um, it's celebrated with a French naval guard, a local bugle corps, and an honor guard from an American legion post in Paris. They take part. A pair of young girls from the surrounding villages place wreaths on the beach, and the U.S. Air Force flying fortresses pass over, firing rockets. I'm not sure about that, and dropping flowers. Now. When it gets to the 1950s, it starts to get really interesting. So we're, we're in the midst of the Cold War and the Marshall Plan is um, being enacted by the Americans. And this is their plan to help rebuild Europe after the war. So they're investing something like $12 billion, which is um, nearly a hundred... lot of money. A hundred billion in modern money. Um, and what we have here is we have Barry Bingham, who is head of the Marshall Plan mission in France. He uses the occasion of the D-Day celebrations to praise... France's post-war recovery efforts and therefore to give themselves, the Americans themselves, a pat on the back for helping France do that. 1952, there are more celebrations and now we're in the middle of the Korean War and the Supreme Commander of the Allied Forces speaks at the D-Day celebrations and he talks about a new and more fearful totalitarianism. So they're using the, the beaches of D-Day like a stage yep. to deal with the issues of what they're going on here. And he, he warns that the communist powers... So he's speaking directly to the communist powers from the beach in northern France, not to underestimate our resolve to live as free men in our own territories. We'll gather the strength we've pledged to one another and set it before our people and our lands as a protective shield until reason backed by strength halts further aggression. And he says here, the last time I came here, so he was part of the, the original um, attack, I came as one of thousands to wage war. This time I come to wage peace. So we've got 1952 D-Day. They're worried about communism, and he's using it to um, to to preach peace. Now, 1954, Eisenhower's getting. We're we're really in the midst of the Cold War now, and Eisenhower speaks and talks about his profound regret that the members of the Grand Alliance have not maintained in time of peace the spirit of that wartime union. My pleasant association with the outstanding Soviet leader, Marshal Zhukov, and the victorious meeting at the elbow of the armies of the East and the West. So again, he's using it to comment 
uh, very negatively on what the Russians are up to in the 1950s. Now, bear with me, because this carries on and gets a little, little even more interesting. Mm-hmm. So in the 80s, um, Reagan is not very interested in the 82 one. Um, and Nancy actually speaks and she says, if my husband were here today, he would tell you how deeply he feels the responsibilities of peace and freedom. He would tell you how he can best ensure that other young men on other beaches and other fields will not have to die. And I think he would tell you of his ideas for nuclear peace. So in the 80s, there's a big public press issue um, to do with cruise missiles in America and what's going on. And they're they're putting cruise missiles on naval ships in the 80s. So it's all within the frame of of nuclear disarmament. And and Reagan then gives this extraordinary speech in 84. So he didn't do it in 82. but the 40th anniversary, isn't it? Yes, and he uses that to relaunch his presidential campaign. So he particularly targets D-Day to do that. And he talks about um, the alliance and how important it is. And he celebrates um, very clearly all of the different... Um, the people in the di- from the different different countries who fought, and then he he addresses the Russians, and he's very two faced about this. He says that uh, on the one hand they were there to help with the success of the Second World War, and the other look at what was happening now um, in in the eighties in, in in politics there. Now this one also is really interesting because Helmut Kohl he's not invited. Um, and it does raise the question of who gets to be invited to them. So the 1994 celebration is the 50th one. By now, Germany's reunited. There is no East and West Germany. Czechoslovakia has split up and the Soviet Union doesn't exist. So for the first time, you've got the leaders of Poland, the Czech Republic and Slovakia here. So it's a visible symbol of the changing yep. structure of Europe. Again, it all happens on the stage of the beach that's Clinton. In northern, northern fifty years, is it? This is Clinton, yeah. yeah. And now Clinton. The, the interesting thing about Clinton is he's there's a now a generational shift. So he's born after the war. He has no uh, first-hand memories or experiences of the war at all. And his speech is all about being the children of the sacrifice, and it all goes down very well. Now. It then gets more and more and more complicated. So 2004, we've got the War of Iraq. There's great tension between France and Germany and who is supported. Bush goes. But this is for the first time that the Russians attend. So Putin arrives. And also Gerhard Schroeder is there, uh, which is really important. And so, again, you've got this, this changing European dynamics all happening mm. on the beach of northern France. Um, then the 65th anniversary is 2009. Again, we've got another generational shift. And Obama speaks for the first time. He doesn't talk about the people just on the beach. He talks about all of the people in the background, all the people working in the factories. It's a really mm. interesting way that Obama thinks. And one of the things I, I particularly loved about this is that Gordon Brown was then prime minister. And they go and inspect Omaha Beach, which is where the Americans landed, yep. and Gordon Brown gets it wrong and calls it Obama Beach. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> slip of the tongue, I'm a, sure. Horrendous. Horrendous slip. Or caught up in the sort of magnetism of Barack Obama, I imagine. So the point is, if you look at the preceding yes. D-Day celebration, so they're happening tomorrow, they're happening today, they've been happening since 1945. And if you yep. look at what's happening, it helps you understand the present. And I think that's really interesting. And I'm fascinated to see what's that's actually going to happen now with Brexit, because I'm sure some European tensions will be visible. Yeah, well, uh, not only Brexit, but also also Trump. 
you know, and America first is isolationist. If you contrast that, those ideas with, say, the um, speech of Reagan, you know, Reagan speaks out against isolationism. So, you know, for him, 40 years on, he was looking back to the role that America had played. And in some ways, America had come in too late. He says, well, the speech, the speech which was written for him, of course, uh, by Peggy Noonan, uh, a speechwriter. We in America have learned bitter lessons from two world wars. It is better to be here, ready to protect the peace, than to take blind shelter across the sea, rushing to respond only after freedom is lost. We've learned that isolationism never was, never will be an acceptable response to tyrannical governments with an expansionist intent. It was very different from, you know, what we might expect from Trump tomorrow. Mm. But the other thing, the other way of looking at it is also thinking about it in terms of the generations that are, that fought in the conflict. And, you know, you, the, the, the men and women that you've got in Portsmouth and over in Normandy over the next couple of days must be in their 90s. So in some ways, they're, they're celebrating this every five and 10 years. Um, so in some ways, what we're seeing is the end of an era the end of um, people who were able to be involved in the commemorations who actually fought in it. And I think this is probably the last time. And I think which leads me on to what I was going to talk about. And this is something that's very dear to histories of the unexpected. And it's thinking about how you reconstruct the history and the experiences of people who've been through uh, the wars. When we did our little podcast on World War II, because we've just written a, a short book called The Unexpected History of World War II, um, we talked about some of the oral histories. And I think what is, what's amazing for D-Day is, the, is the, the range of voices that still survive. And I was just reading uh, the newspaper uh, following The Guardian today, and looking at Emmanuel Macron, the French president, uh, and the speech that he gave uh, in Portsmouth. And he quotes there a young resistance fighter called Henri Fetet, uh, who was executed at just 16 years old. And we have surviving a letter from him to his parents. My dear parents, I'm going to die for my country. I want France to be free and the French to be happy. The soldiers are coming to get me. I must hurry. My handwriting may look wobbly, but it's just because I'm using a small pencil. I'm not afraid of death. My conscience is completely clear. A thousand kisses. Long live France. And it's not just written records like that. We've got photographic evidence, but also there have been wonderful projects that have been capturing the oral testimony of people that have... Um, that experienced it. And for our, for our book, we relied quite a lot on some of the big public oral history projects that were produced. And there's a wonderful BBC archive called Voices of D-Day, which captures not just the sort of the allied response, but there also, there's a German response as well. So the Axis powers, there are men, there are women, there's a, there's a, a French uh, resistance fighter who celebrates his 18th birthday. And I just wanted to sort of share uh, a couple of these uh, with our listeners, just to sort of give a range of, of perspectives on this. And one of the ones that struck me most was uh, an individual called Bob Littler, uh, who was 19 on D-Day, and he's a corporal 
in the second battalion of the King's Shropshire Light Infantry. And he gives this, he records his his memories. And one of the things that was most poignant was the build-up to D-Day. And of course, they didn't know when it was going to be, but there's a sense that it's going to happen over the summer of 44. And he goes home to visit his father, and his father takes him up into the hills. And I just want to read you this, this little extract here. One of the later, we're going to leave practically every other weekend. We're getting leave practically every other weekend at this time. Make the most of it, chaps, you know. It's obviously got to be done this summer sort of thing while the weather's suitable. That was percolating down to us. We knew that. And I went home with my dad and he was getting his bit of petrol. He took me to the top of one of the hills in Herefordshire where you could see a panorama. It was brilliant. Well, you've got it. Here was brilliant. And he said... Well, this is what it's all about, son. See all the Jerry's, he said, and we don't want them here, do we? Because we've been, because he'd been in the 14 to 18 war, got gassed in it. He said, this is why we're trying to do this. And it's worth, it's worth it, isn't it? When you see this. And I agreed, of course. I was about 19 and a bit then. 19 and a quarter, I suppose. I thought on the same lines. There was no argument about it. And being in the wonderful countryside in Herefordshire, it is a moral booster, a moral booster rather than morale booster. It is what it's all about. It is what you want forever rather than a jackboot stamping on you, I think. Yes, you couldn't do anything else but agree. Another perspective is a woman's perspective and the way that women were involved uh, in D-Day. And there's another great uh, voice that survives, uh, a woman called Ginge Thomas, um, who was employed as a shorthand writer to Lieutenant General Frederick Morgan, uh, who's one of the Chief of Staff to the Supreme Allied Commander in London. She says that he's basically a workaholic. And from her account, you can basically see all the preparations that are taking place for D-Day, which is absolutely extraordinary. All the planning that went into choreographing this, this operation, Operation Overlord as it was called. And one of the things that struck me here was the way in which they were trying to piece together the terrain and the geographical landscape of, of northern France when they were arriving. And she, she says, I remember an appeal going out to the public for any information that they thought might be of help to the planners, like picture postcards, Michelin guides, mm -hmm. the type of thing, <laughs> maps, anything, so that they could plan the beachheads the other side. And I remember a flood of stuff coming in. I remember the rooms with the postcards and things on the wall. Such a flood of stuff came in. And obviously, out of a vast amount of stuff, there was bound to be a fair bit that was going to be of value and help. There's also such a poignant, really touching account of they're worried about whether the weather is going to be okay for the invasion because basically what they've got to do is line up the stars with the, with the sea with the so there's a certain gap that they can that they need to get so that everything aligns um, and the weather's fine so that they can land otherwise they're going to have to wait a couple of weeks so it's very tense you know knowing whether when whether they're actually going to be able to go and there's the night the eve of the of d-day uh, she and the people she's with uh, on the military base can't sleep and so they wake up in the middle of the night and they go to the, the local chapel uh, that's, on, that's on, um, on, the, on the base and basically pray. 
you know, and spend the whole night kind of in, in prayer. The final thing that I want to talk about, because I think this brings a, this brings a, a, a different perspective, uh, is a German perspective. So uh, a Franz Gockel, uh, who, 18 years old on D-Day, uh, and he was stationed at Resistance Post 62 on the beach of Colville sur Mer, which is what the Americans codenamed uh, Omaha rather than Obama uh, <laughs> Beach by the landing, yeah. by the landing forces. Um, and, and his is one of the best accounts that I've got, that I've come across, that I've got, that I've read of the, the forces coming in and landing on the beach and how that actually appeared to the Germans who were defending That's great. I've never, never read one of those. On D-Day, we were shocked. And I, as well as the others, we were defending ourselves. We wanted to survive. They were not our enemy. We did not know them. And we had no chance to say yes or no to what was happening. And it goes on. Um, the opponent wanted to defeat us, as it was called in those days. And we did our best in order to repel the opponent. And we did not think about the individual human being. When the landing troops arrived, we said that on every single boat there were more soldiers than in our entire bay of six kilometres. Each ship had a few hundred and we had about three to four hundred. Each resistance post had twenty to twenty-five and each boat was spitting out thirty, fifty, one hundred. In the beginning, our artillery, which was already trained at the beach, was showing us the aim and the artillery did manage to bring the attack to a stop in the first two or three hours. He then goes on to describe how he was wounded um, and he basically tries to sort, of, um, to sort of retreat. He doesn't describe it as retreat, but to sort of go and get, and get medical help because retreat isn't something that the Germans were, you know, were, were sort of drilled in doing. They were basically there to defend until the death. But then there's a passage where he says, I was standing there until the ships were close to the beach, about 500 to 600 metres away, and just before they were going to land, they were shooting like a rolling wall of fire. And this wall of fire started with the barriers on the beach. The barriers were made of stems of trees, which partly had telemines, which were shot to pieces so that the landing boats could get through more easily. And we had put those stems of trees there with the mines. We believed if they come, they will not only come during a high tide. They will only come during a high tide, and now they were coming with a low tide. This was a surprise to us. Partly they were torn to pieces, and partly they were burning. But there were still a few which were standing, this is the trees, because to shoot a single tree to pieces, you had to hit it precisely. At high tide, there was a bigger landing boat, which had come after all the small ones. They only had 15 to 20 men. But this large one, which landed right in front of us, had about 200 to 300 men, and they had their exit on both sides and stood bunched up. And one comrade, who was 50 metres in front of me, and he came crawling into my bunker and shouted, Franz, beware, they are coming. Now you have to defend yourself. And this is what we both did. So from this, you get, a, you get such a sort of a sense of the battle from all perspectives. Yeah. From operational command to somebody who is who's, you know, talking to his father and preparing himself mentally to somebody who is trying to repel the invading force. The postcards were good, aren't they? They're yes. really interesting. Yes. So the, um, the the that woman's description of things and that that 
I love that when you're, you're, you're sitting at home and minding your own business and you suddenly realise that a, a little postcard on the wall that was sent to you from Normandy several years before might be the key to someone's safety. Yes, yeah. absolutely. The praying side of it was also interesting. Have you come across any other uh, descriptions of people praying? Because I've come across loads. Oh, oh, share them. This, I mean, churches. D-Day's all about churches. Right, go on then. You know that? Um, the I wouldn't be at all surprised. Now, no, I, I say it suddenly made a lot of sense to me. There are a couple in Normandy where, where significant things happened on D-Day and they've been, the memory of what happened in or on that church has remained and continued. Um, so you've got one in the small hamlet of uh, Saint-Mère-Église where a, it's a very well-known incident, this, a paratrooper, John Steele of the 505th Parachute Infantry, Infantry Regiment, sorry, he gets caught in the spire of the town church and is stuck there with the fighting going on below him and he, he has to pretend that he's dead because the, the Germans are in the town. Yep. He is yep. stuck on the church. So he pretends he's dead until someone realises he's not dead and he's, and, taken down, and he's taken down and, and held captive. And that's, that's a... I've seen photographs now that there's a recreation of the parachute around the, the steeple of this church. Hmm. There's another one in um, Angerville-au-Plain, which is a church which was used by US Army medics. So once they'd, they'd taken the area, um, medics set up in the church to treat both... Germans and British and French and American soldiers. And the pews were used as beds and they still carry bloodstains from when they were operating this, on them. To this day. To this day, oh, so you can go and see gosh. them. Um, interestingly, the, the medics refused any soldiers to have any weapons inside the church, which was something which was heeded and agreed from both sides. Now, one of the medics, Robert Wright, said that he wanted to be buried at that particular church. So profoundly affected yes. was he by his experience of being in that church in D-Day that he asked for his ashes to be buried there. But it turned out to be impossible. And the only way they could do it was to smuggle his ashes into France and then do it on the sly. So there's a headstone there which reads R-E-W, which is Robert Wright's initials. Mm. Now, see, on the one hand, you've got this saving of lives and you've got the fighting going on in the churches of northern France but what I found completely staggering is what was going on in New York at exactly the same time so there's a collection of photographs um, which were taken on D-Day in churches in New York and they're wonderful now um, here, here are a few, just just a view of them I'm going to flick through here these are people praying for the troops these are people it? praying for the troops on D-Day If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for 
for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Can you describe a couple of those for me, James? A few people scattered around in a fairly grand-looking building. Yeah, so this is a, a, a church with pews. don't know whether it's... Uh, Episcopalian uh, or Catholic Church. Not sure. In... This one's definitely Catholic. Yeah. Uh, so that one, that's the Saint Vincent de Paul's Church um, in Chelsea, so the west side of Manhattan. Yeah. And it's a it's a particularly interesting church. This I've been looking into this. So it's a church. They're not just randomly having photographs taken in this church. This is a church which serves the French speaking community in New York. So not just exiles from France itself, but French-speaking community from all over the world, principally from West Africa. Um, so she's, that woman the time, there is on her knees praying in a, in a chapel. She's playing... She's having pr- lit a, an intercessory candle. That's right. And there are other um, examples of these. Now, this church, um, the Saint-Vincent de Paul, is really interesting because it was the building which was uh, the location of Edith Piaf's wedding. Oh. In 1952. But would you like to look at it now? It's an yes. amazing building. Gosh. That's quite striking, isn't Fully it? Fully boarded up. Yes. It, it's shut. It's shut now. Yeah, it's completely closed. It doesn't. It, it is not used as a church anymore. And this used to be the beating heart of France in Manhattan. Right. Um, and it is now empty. It has been completely... Do we know why it's empty? ...abandoned. Um not off the top of my head, but okay. there were decisions okay. not to, right, not right, to carry right, on. Right. Um, and there was a real fight to, to keep it going, but it was ignored by... Uh, it, was, it was ignored by the... Um, I'm not entirely sure who it was. A um, Some part of the New York bureaucracy claimed that the existing facade, it's neoclassical, yeah. It replaced the original Romanesque revival facade in 1939, was designed by a little known architect and lacked architectural distinction. Right. And that's the reason. So it's closed they, down for closed that down. rather than funding? Or, I mean, it's yeah. unbelievably yeah. small-minded. Yeah. Because, OK, you have layers of history. It may not be the original church, but it's still massively significant. And yes. the fact that it's a location of history passing, we've got all these photographs of people praying in there. We know that Edith Piaf got married, but whatever. Looking at it from D-Day point of view, this was a really significant location of history and what was going on in America at the time, and um, it's been closed down, hmm. uh, which I think is a tragedy. Yes. Uh, yeah. Te- quite, te- quite telling also about religion is, that, to link us back to the speeches that you were talking about, uh, is George W. Bush's speech 
on, I think it's 2004, which is 60 years, uh, the 60 year anniversary. And one of the things that he emphasizes there is the role of religion in the, the American troops that landed. That along all the other stuff that they were carrying, they found Bibles. Okay. So carrying those sort of personal prayer books. Well, just before we move too far away from what was happening in New yep. York. So Roosevelt addresses the public directly and tells them what's been going on. And the address itself is conceived in the form of a prayer. Hmm. And what he does is he calls on the entire American people to continue their prayers in the coming days. He says... Many people have urged that I call the nation into a single day of special prayer, but because the road is long and the desire is great, I ask that all our people devote themselves in a continuance of prayer. As we rise to each new day, and again when each day is spent, let words of prayer be on our lips, invoking thy help to our efforts. And elsewhere I found proof that the reaction of many Americans was, in fact, to attend religious services. Mm. So the fact that these photographs exist of all of these churches and chapels in Manhattan on D-Day mm. is evidence of an unusual phenomenon. It hasn't just wandered into a church. There are normally people there praying. Yep. There, there yep. are an unusually large amount of people in the churches. So you've got yep. the fighting in and around the churches in Normandy, and then everyone, hands together, nice eyes uplifted in, in America, and they're kind of joined that, joined that way. I thought that was really interesting. Very good. Mm. Very good. Well found. Thank you. Um, for me, D-Day is about pockets. Oh. And we've, we've done a podcast on pockets. Yes. Uh, we've written a chapter on pockets in our World War II book. And this is about the invention of the cargo pocket, uh, which has a very interesting history on D-Day. Uh, the 1930s... The cargo pocket being a pocket on the bag of your... On the You know, like cargo, like cargo pants, uh, in the American sense, pants meaning trousers. Uh, cargo pants have big pockets that you put stuff in, yeah. largely munitions and things. But in the 1930s, uh, there was a revolution in army uniforms and it started in, in, in the British Army. And in 1938, there's a new type of uniform, widely known as battle dress or number five uniform, that was very practical and functional and packed full of pockets. Uh, the trousers had a large mat pocket. There was, in, there was a pocket in the left knee and the right upper hip. Um, there was a new pattern battle dress uh, introduced in 1942 as well, which included two inside pockets in the shirt, um, reduced to a single inside pocket in later variations. Uh, troops in parachute and glider units were also issued special trousers with two pockets. This transfers to the American Army as well. Uh, and the US Airborne Divisions of Paratroopers, uh, where in 1942 the commander of the 82nd Airborne Division, one Major William P. Yarborough, oversaw the development of a special new uniform. So basically what they were looking at was really uh, suitable kit that would allow uh, paratroopers to jump uh, so they needed comfortable boots and land safely and also um, pockets all over them so that they could they could carry stuff because they were literally carrying over a hundred pounds worth of stuff. Do you want to know what the equipment issued to US paratroopers included? Yes, I do, James. It included 3K rations of daily combat food, as well as an extra in the jump trousers, a raincoat, 2D rations, or emergency chocolate bars, uh, with three more inside the jacket, a flashlight with batteries, uh, a bandolier of um, 30 
0.06 ammunition, as well as two on the chest, a shaving and toiletry kit, sewing kit, carton of cigarettes, and two 60mm mortar rounds. And I assume that that is an official that is, a, that is an official so, list. As we know, as good historians, what actually happens is usually wildly yes, different. Exactly. And so what they did, because they had so much of this stuff... Um, They've loaded more in there, I but there, there are records of them as they're going to the, to the aircraft, throwing cartons of cigarettes and useless kit and, and coins that they don't need out to the, the crowds that are following them. But on D-Day, they're basically flying over France. They're being dropped. Their pockets are just stuffed with everything. That with the force of the, the, the slipstream, the strong slipstream, as they come down the pockets split open. Mm. And so apparently, on the first day, on D-Day, um, the beaches of Normandy are just strewn with all this Cigarettes stuff. Cigarettes and chocolate. It was from, raining, from raining fags and chocolate. If somebody could get in touch to say whether this is actually authentic or not, uh, <laughs> I, I, we would be very, very grateful. Yeah, but it does raise a couple of interesting questions. And, and the first is what you keep in your pockets is, is yes. something that we, we've become slightly obsessed with it doing is. this ridiculous podcast. And we, yes. um, please listen to our podcast on pockets. It's yes. one of the most interesting ones I think we've done. And read Rebecca Unsworth's brilliant article on the history of pockets. Yeah. And when you're thinking about D-Day, think about all the personal little things that people had, the little knickknacks that associated them home, good luck charms. Yep. That's all part of it as well. Which yes. is, sorry, which has a very long history. Yes. Um, well, that was wonderful. It was. I've got more. Do you have more? I haven't got any more. I have, I have more. So it's all about decoys and inventions as well. Yeah. So one of the things that, they, that um, the Allied powers wanted to do was basically disguise the fact that they were going to invade in Normandy. Yes. Um, and so they wanted to um, make the Axis powers, the Germans, uh, think that they were going to land in Calais. Yep. And so have you come across those inflatable tanks that were put on the beaches? Um, there are example, there's an example of one here, a brilliant little book that um, was produced by the Imperial War Museum by Peter Taylor called Weird War Two, uh, which I recommend to you all. Uh, you've got an example of the tanks there, but also as decoys, as the paratroopers were coming down, they, were all, they also sent down decoy paratroopers. So they sent down about 500 dummies. sort of dummies that would, would be in other places that would land in other places and take the Germans' attention off the actual paratroopers that were landing. There's a lot of sleight of hand in the Second World War. Yes. And I wonder, and, and I, there's a kind of continuing... Zebra ships. ...interest in it. Yes. Um, and I wonder why. Have you given that any thought? Why, why are people interested in it? it what, what is it about trickery that, is, is it that, that people are so interested in? I don't know. It's, so, it's unusual, isn't it? And it kind of, it combines... A it kind sort of, of isn't. I mean, if you look at the history of warfare, it's fundamentally not. So I, it, I don't think people are surprised It's unusual it. to me. I'm surprised oh. by it. When, I, when you first showed me those zebra ships, mm. I'd never seen anything like that before. Uh, yeah, he's talking about dazzle camouflage. Dazzle camouflage, first, first um, which, was, which was extraordinary. And that's used in the Second World War as well. Mm. Um, so I, I don't know. It's, it's a sort of an, a fascination with weaponry. Uh, and also things that are sort of maybe it's a reaction to hand, that. So you, ha you have hand. you have weaponry, yeah. and then you have the opposite of weaponry, which is actually shadows pretending yes. to be troops yes. or dummy troops. Yeah, yeah. So it's literally the opposite of that, which is why perhaps it's so powerful if you put the two of them together. So on the one hand, you're talking about 
um, rockets being launched from Germany and landing on London. Yes. And on the other hand, you're talking about literal shadows, cutouts of people, yes. um, so they appear like they do on airfields or dropping dummies out of yep. airplanes. Yep. And it's it's that contrast which which grabs people's attention. Yes. Hmm. But there were also many technological uh, innovations. Um, in particular, um, uh, Hobart's funnies, uh, which were designed by Major General Percy Hobart, who's a commander, uh, and he what he did was adapt various sort of standard tanks for various uses. I mean, have a look at some of these pictures here. Uh, a Churchill tank uh, with a bobbin on it, which is basically a, a large bobbin, and what it would do, it was basically a, a, small a, 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 a track uh, okay, that, yeah. so that so they would lay out tracks so that other vehicles could come over it. There was one, another one adapted so that it could fit a large mortar. Um, there were crocodile, crocodile flame-throwing tanks, so one of the guns was replaced with a flamethrower. Um, Sherman tanks with um, that that were used to um, to climb up escarpments. Uh, there were other things that um, that sort of came along, and they had you know how a tank has a has the sort of the top to it. What's the toppy bit called? The the turret. Uh, the turret was gone, and then there were two arms that came out each side, and it would form into a bridge. So all kinds of things like that. There was another tank with uh, that was equipped with chains that would whip around and that they would explode all the mines around. So what's interesting about that, I suppose, is, is that you've got a active interest in innovation yes. in the middle of one of the most important military operations in history. Yes. Which is very unusual. Yes, isn't it? Yes. Um, well, it is. I mean, partly because people try stuff out, but they won't necessarily try it out where, where, it's, when it's actually. Partly because a couple of years earlier, when they tried to land in Dieppe, an amphibious landing, they it failed because they didn't have the craft that would enable them to actually, yeah. you know, go up the beaches. So there's a lot of practice, and in fact, very near us in Slapton Sands, which is just outside of. Um, just, yeah, just, just very, South very near where we are, Dartmouth. South Devon, in, near Dartmouth, um, where you've got a, a sort of a beach very similar to uh, the Omaha Beach, um, Obama Beach, it, uh, Obama Beach, <laughs> in that it's got, in that it's got a, a sort of, a, it's got a, wa it's got water, still water behind it. Oh yes, so it's okay. got a, yeah. So it's got a sort of lake behind it. So the the Americans practiced their D-Day landings on that, and this is what this happened in I think about April twenty um, eighth of April, um, nineteen forty four, and in fact they were attacked by um, by by German uh, high speed patrol boats, and several hundred were killed, and they hushed this up uh, because they didn't want the the Axis powers to know that they were going to uh, launch an attack in, in Normandy. Well, I think the, the important thing to remember is that, well, it's, it's easy to forget the, the sort of lens of what's happening here and that no one had ever tried to do anything on this scale in this location before. And no. it's not only impressive that it happened and they achieved it, but 
they did it at all, you know, yes. full, full yes. stop. And yes. there was a constant fear of failure. So yes. don't forget that it very nearly could not have worked. Well, the American, it, it could go wrong. The Americans nearly failed. In yeah. and, and the Omaha panic about Beach. the innovations actually yeah. really made me think. It's, it's to do with insecurity yeah. and having faith, not having faith. What do we, we need to do literally everything we can to get that edge yeah. to defeat yeah. the enemy. Yeah. So a great deal of uncertainty there. Excellent. Um, well, th that, I hope, has exploded this subject a little in your minds yes. and will help you uh, follow your own little, little rabbit hole of research. So D-Day is about voices, memory, churches, pockets, dummies. Um, the Watergate Affair, Cold War, the Cold War Vietnam, cruise missiles, and it's all about the present. Be very aware of your, the way you're thinking about a D-Day is, is completely coloured by the world that you live in and the experience you have and the knowledge that you already have. And because of that, it's unique. And so celebrate it. And let us know about it, what particular aspects you're interested in. Now, um, I very much hope you've enjoyed this. I've really enjoyed this. I like, enjoyed I like this. doing an um, anniversary thing. Um, do get in touch with me. Follow me on Twitter. I'm at Dr Sam Willis. And I'm at James Daybell. And you can follow Histories of the Unexpected podcast on at Unexpected Pod. You've got historiesoftheunexpected.com for all of our books, all of our live shows and one last final message James and I have recently launched a Patreon account you can find us at patreon.com forward slash histories of the unexpected any financial help you could offer us will keep the mics on so that we can spend our time preparing for these we could spend our time recording for them we can pay for the equipment and we can pay for people to edit them and get them uploaded and under your noses and in your ears and in your brains we're on a bit of a mission to change the way that people Think about the past, and it's a serious mission, and we cannot do it without your help. So anything you can offer, just $2 a month, will make all the difference. Yes, please. <laughs> Thank you so much, guys. Bye. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.